Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the week's most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Editor-in-Chief Drew Cherry, joined today by John Evans, Correspondent in Brazil, and John Fiorillo, Executive Editor in the U.S. Let's dive in. It has been another fascinating week in seafood. Too many topics to choose from, but we finally narrowed it down to a few that we haven't looked in on in a while. And one of those is uh, the Ecuadorian farm shrimp sector. It's been an interesting past 12 months for Ecuador um, with COVID. In the middle of last year, there were, according to Chinese officials, uh, traces of COVID on the packaging of Ecuadorian shrimp. And Ecuador pushed back pretty heavily on that, saying that it's likely that it came through uh, other parts of the food chain or, or the supply chain, rather. Um, but that's just one of the issues that Ecuador has been facing. Uh, most recently, um, John, you've been reporting on um, kind of ongoing attacks, and it's something that you know most aquaculture sectors don't have to deal with. We looked at, um, at Chile; they there was a terrorist attack there. Um, I believe it was a couple months ago. Um, but Ecuador, it, it's it's sort of a persistent issue that Ecuadorian shrimp producers face, and it's, it's, um, it's, it's an issue they want the government to step in and do something about. Yeah, some, I mean, some areas of South America, Latin America can be quite lawless. Um, you know, Ecuadorian shrimp producers have suffered seven deaths and 60 injuries from violence in more than 90 attacks on their property. Um, the trade body, um, CNA, which represents the uh, Ecuadorian industry revealed in September, and they've been stepping up their campaign to get more protection from the government. Uh, it's a, it's it's at a difficult time when everybody's cash strapped, and of course there's the background of the pandemic as well, making uh, governments uh, or leaving governments with even less money. But they, they you know they they they're demanding that the government pays the or pick up the tab for their sixty million dollar a year annual costs associated with protecting uh, Ecuadorian shrimp producers from robberies and other violence. Um, and they've become increasingly noisy uh, about that over the past year, uh, led by Jose Antonio Camposano, the president of the uh, National Chamber of uh, Aquaculture. And, um, you know, they say it shouldn't be too much to expect, you know, that their, their workers should be able to carry out their jobs uh, in safety. So, so John, um, when you're talking about the sixty million dollars annually, um, you know, I read in one of your pieces this is a hundred and fifty what they call criminal actions. So that could be everything from assault to robbery of of actual product or feed uh, boats, equipment. I mean, it's it's um, you know, again, it's pretty persistent. But this cost that they're talking about, what do producers do to protect? protect themselves what kind of investments is it security or or how do yeah, they well, that's what they're looking for i mean those those producers who can afford it uh, the bigger ones you know they do um uh, they, they do have a, a certain level of um private security which which is costly and too costly for the mainly um small producers which ecuador is made up of um so yeah those kind of costs for smaller producers just aren't feasible 
Okay, so there has been some progress, though. It seems the Ecuadorian police are taking it a bit more seriously. Um, I believe it was sort of the end of, of February. There was a big, uh, there was a big um, bust, I guess you could say, a, a dragnet set up um, in the yeah. El, El Oro region of Ecuador. Um, and they found a, a whole cache of arms as part of this um, as part of this group that they had um, that they had had busted of yes. um, uh, rifles, uh, machine guns, uh, radios, vessels. I mean, th this is a well-funded um, sort of criminal organization um, that's that's operating not just in shrimp, but I mean that that was a big big bust that they put a lot of uh, a lot of money and time into, right? Yeah, and it was welcomed, obviously, by the uh, the the Ecuadorian shrimp industry. But I think there's plenty more work to do where you know where that comes from. I mean, one bust is is fine, but it'll have to be a sustained campaign if it's to to really uh, help the uh, the industry. I think. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, the industry is calling now for, on the back of that particular uh, uh, set of arrests, for judges and prosecutors to, you know, impose the harshest sanctions. Uh, don't forget, we're talking about, as you as you mentioned, we're talking about armed robbery, and we're also talking about, you know, the, uh, a number of murders over the last uh, over the last period. So yeah, it's um. It's something I think that's not going to go away quickly for the Ecuadorian industry, but um, you know they really could do with some help there. Yeah, and it seems at least that Camposano, as you said, he's been very active, kind of getting the word out um, on social media. It seems like he's gotten uh, sort of traction by corresponding and 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 tagging the Ecuadorian police. So, I mean, is there a sense in your past conversations with Camposano that 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 the shrimp industry is being heard more by the Ecuadorian government? Well, he hasn't made it clear that it's being heard more, but he's certainly trying to make it be heard more, as you, as you mentioned. Um, I think it'll, have to, it'll take a sustained campaign. I mean, after all, it is one of um, Ecuador's biggest export in, uh, uh, industries, you know, after petroleum. Um, so, yes. Well, like I said, not something that in the course of a normal day for most aquaculture producers that they need to worry about. So, um, yes, but um, thanks for the coverage and update on that. Um, moving uh, farther away over to Europe, John, uh, you have been our, our man on Brexit um and uh and and you know it's it's been so difficult especially for um somebody that is not from the UK um and does not have that full understanding of the sweep of of history of of um uh leave and brexit and uh and all the um you know and, and all the issues that have have led to it um, to really understand it. Um, but since the beginning of the year, there's been all kinds of disruptions. Um, the seafood industry has really been caught in the middle of that. Um, tell us what's the latest and what's the biggest concerns on the minds of uh, UK uh, exporters in particular? Well, it, it, as you mentioned, it really is all the consequence of leaving the world's most uh, um, affluent and powerful trade bloc. There was always going to be uh, friction 
Uh, it, it just depended on how much friction, whether there was a deal or no deal. Um, we're in the sort of midway uh, state at the moment. Um, but, you know, as, as you say, the Scottish seafood producers, particularly, and also those in the southwest of England, have found to their cost, you know, the the VAT that they now have to pay in, in the European Union, not just in uh, once, but in 27 uh, different countries. So they have to get a person in those 27 different countries if they're exporting to them to sort the VAT out for them. And that's costly. And then there's all the extra paperwork and health certificates. Although Boris Johnson has unilaterally um, said that the uh, the um, the extra paperwork and checks that were going to come in in um, April and July will be uh, put back until the end of the year to give more of a grace period. Although that has upset the European Union, and we will see whether they will decide to impose tariffs on the back of that. Caught up in all of this, of course, is the uh, Northern Ireland Peace Agreement from uh, 1998 after 30 years of effective war between. Um, uh, sectarian groups but coming back to seafood yeah i mean as the scottish seafood industry has um has warned you know customers are finding other supply chains and that they are fearing for the you know their reputational damage at the moment and this all comes at the same time as uh, figures uh, published showing that um exports to uh, the 27 nation uh, trade block uh, plunged almost uh, 38% year over year um, in January. So uh, it's not good news for the uh, industry at the moment. Although there were plenty of warnings, the UK Seafood Association, Seafish, I think did um, as best they could to try to give resources uh, to, um, to exporters and seafood companies to help them prepare. It still seems that um, that largely the industry has just been uh, just been buried in paperwork and confusion. The official government line is that you know that, that companies had plenty of time to repair, but the, the, the reality is the agreement was only reached on Christmas Eve, so that left about eight days, you know, for companies to adapt to um, a whole new. Um, it, as someone described it to me in in the seafood industry, uh, I think it was from the southwest of. England, they said it was like, um, actually someone from the Scottish industry, that they said it was like turning up um, to your company with a whole new IT system and you've been given no training on it on, on day one, uh, having been used to a, a, a totally different uh, system. Um, so yeah, that, that's why they have struggled with it at first. But as I say, the, uh, the, the extra paperwork, the health certificates, the VAT charges, you know, they're not going away. So do you think there's merit to that idea that, um, for example, French uh, importers in Boulogne-sur-Mer or um, some of these other companies that, that have really had these strong relationships with UK exporters, do you think there's real um, merit in the idea that they would um, somehow see uh, UK exporters as unreliable, or do you think that's maybe that fear is overblown, and that there is some understanding about what's going on? Well, there there is a certain degree of that because, as I said earlier, you know, customers are finding other um, who've been who've been let down are finding other um, suppliers, um, but there is a there is a sort of uh, another side to this in that 
I suppose it depends on the size of the company. Some companies, I'm not, I'm not talking specifically about seafood, but some companies are, t are talking about setting up um, subsidiaries in France so that they can handle the VAT and try and do it that way. Um, I mean, there was, there was a story I saw of one fisherman, for example, this is slightly off, off, off track, but one fisherman down in the southwest, I think he was a, a shellfish fish, fisherman, quite a, a young uh, person as, as fisherman goes in his 30s, well established in the business, but he decided to up sticks to Spain to try the same profession because he said he just couldn't make it work in Britain anymore. Seems like there's so many um, unintended effects and it's been interesting from, from our point of view to see it all through the seafood industry um, lens and it's, um, it's an interesting microcosm, especially because the fishing sector really was uh, from the beginning used as kind of a wedge issue, uh, isn't that correct? Yeah, that's right. And the uh, the people, if you speak to them um, down in uh, Bricks, Brixham in uh, in the southwest of England, for example, they feel very let down as if they were used. Um, I mean, it, it, it's it's you know maybe maybe they could have seen it coming. Really, I mean, Johnson wanted a trade deal, and with the seafood industry worth about half a percent of GDP. Um, was he really going to sacrifice? Um, what is he really going to sacrifice the rest of the economy for? A, you know, for a, a you know a much smaller a much smaller segment, um, and they and they do feel badly let down by that. But I mean, and and uh, let's let's not let's not forget that uh, the the government uh, uh, Michael Gove and Johnson, Prime Minister Johnson were. Um, beating the drum, saying that they, you know, they were fighting the corner for the um, uh, the seafood industry right up to the um, uh, almost right up to the end of the uh, negotiations that concluded on uh, Christmas Eve. It seems like every day there's a new report of um, of issues with uh, either logistics or, um, as you said, uh, unintended or at least unforeseen costs. So um, we'll keep right on top of that. Uh, moving over to uh, you, Mr. Fiorillo, um, you broke some news this week um, about um, the subsidiary of Canadian uh, multi, uh, I don't know what you would call it, a, a conglomerate, I guess, is, is sort of the, the best term that comes to mind, but um, conglomerate Jim Pattison Group, which is based in, um, in British Columbia. Among their seafood holdings is um, the Canadian fishing company, which referred to as Canfisco, uh, Alaska General Seafoods, a, a processor up uh, up in Alaska. Um, they also supply uh, under their Ocean Brands division um, uh, two of the largest canned uh, canned seafood brands in uh, in in Canada as well. Now, um, what were they up to this week? What uh, tell us about their latest acquisition? They acquired uh, Deep Sea Fisheries. Um, it's a small operation that, uh, as far as salmon's concerned, uh, serves Bristol Bay. They have a plant up in the region there, and in Igigik and. Uh, yeah, so they um, acquired that, and that kind of bolts on to their other acquisitions, uh, including E&E &E Foods and um, some other 
facilities they have operating up in Alaska. So, you know, it, it goes along the lines of what, <clears throat> what we were saying, uh, I guess, a, a year ago or more um, about how different the Alaska salmon sector continues to look year after year, uh, largely because of the pace of consolidation there. Right, and and we've seen so many uh, so many major companies exiting, particularly Japanese companies. Um, you know, we saw Maruha Nichiro selling out uh, Peter Pan to um, to a private equity group and a, a, a company down here in Washington State. Um, but uh, but you mentioned in the story as well. There's um, pretty reliable rumblings i think we could say that um ken fisco is uh in the running or interested in uh marubeni's north pacific seafoods which is a, a very sizable salmon processor both in bristol bay and other regions so um are they going to continue to be on the hunt you think i think so um you know the north pacific seafood story is interesting there's been quite a bit of talk about uh, it, it, not, it being on the block for some time now. And, um, you know, Cam Fisco has emerged as the presumed um, suitor for it. So we'll have to see. Neither company obviously want, wanted to talk about it when we chatted with them. And, and that makes sense, obviously. But, um, yeah, you know, and if Marabaini does exit, that that's you know that's a, a kind of a milestone event because uh, largely there won't be any Japanese ownership anymore in Alaska salmon. I don't think there will be. Anyways, I have to think that out in my mind a little bit. But um, so yeah, it's uh, changing times and and the new season, uh, the twenty one season, the forecast is out and it's you know the sockeye harvest is pretty much online with um, last year, um, a little lower in the bay, but the pink salmon harvest, because it's an odd year and the fish, the runs are larger in the odd years, um, will be pretty significant. So that helps particularly the guys with operations in southeast Alaska. Again, we've talked about this, but you know the the Alaska salmon sector is is quite unique in the seafood industry because um, those companies are wholly uh, reliant on individual fishermen to deliver them products. So they don't sit on any product. They don't own any of that salmon in the way, say that um, there's other fisheries that have um, quota systems. And so these relationships with individual fishermen and being able to attract those fishermen to deliver to you is uh, that's everything. Yeah, I mean, that's a big deal. Um, and, you know, we wrote uh, a while back about when Silver Bay came into the scene and they set up a different, quite, uh, quite different relationship with the fishermen where the fishermen are actually owners. It's a co-op kind of thing. And you don't, you know, you don't see that in Alaska. Usually it's, you know, you a fisherman fishes for a particular company, but there's no, there's no ownership or anything like that. You just deliver your fish. So um, having control of the fleet or having a large fleet has been always important. So generally, if you look at it, Silver Bay and Trident 
uh, control about 50% of the production, uh, salmon production, and they have the largest fleets generally. Now, Peter Pan, with the new ownership, um, they've been talking quite a bit about being, you know, an Alaska company now, and, you know, uh, really sounds like they're going to try and attract uh, fleet, you know, fishermen that th they may have lost over the years as, as the company has um, kind of stagnated. So it'll be interesting. Uh, it'll be really interesting. What, one other thing I find interesting with the with the consolidation that's been happening, you haven't really seen plant capacity removed from the equation. And I, I find that somewhat fascinating. And I'm wondering when that will change. Uh, a lot of the plants up there are, you know, older, um, you know, varying degrees of uh, technology in them. And um, it's just, it just seems, you know, everybody will tell you there's too much processing capacity, but no plants are disappearing as far as I, I know at the moment. That has to be an inevitable, um, inevitable uh, impact of all this, I would think, especially with a company like Canfisco coming in that already has a lot of existing facilities. Um, something does need to happen here, and there's a reason why uh, Maruha Nichiro is willing to take a a significant, a sizable financial hit on the sale of their operations, sale of Peter Pan, um, to this uh, to this new uh, group. I mean, the Alaskan element, you know, Alaskans like dealing with Alaskans, just like you know, whatever Russians like dealing with Russians. You know, there there is a there's always a um, an advantage to being, uh, say, locally owned. Um, now, the asterisk there is that the majority of the fishermen in Bristol Bay are actually not from Bristol Bay. So it's, um, it's become more and more and more over the years uh, made up of fishermen that uh, are, are based uh, in what Alaskans call the lower 48. Um, so I don't know to what extent the Alaskan um, card will, will work for, uh, say, Peter Pan. Um, will the uh, Alaskan card play against Canfisco and its effort to um, uh, attract more of its fleet? Who knows? But um, one thing's for sure is people aren't making money in salmon right now. Um, uh, but, you know, they, they do think that they have some ways of doing it. And, and the, the biggest one that you see is that People have really, really strong belief in value-added programs and being able to move more fish domestically, uh, move it away from some of these more commodity export markets. So, um, watch this space. I, I, you know, we'll we'll see what Camfisco does with regards to North Pacific, or if somebody else jumps in there. Um, but I'm sure that'll be coming out uh, in the in the coming months, um, if not more consolidation happening as we head into the 2021 season. Well, and with that trip around the world from Ecuador to the UK to China to uh, Alaska, let's wrap it up for the week. Thank you, John and John. Uh, just a reminder, a little plug that later on this month, uh, we will have our next digital event, our Seafood Outlook, uh, which we have traditionally hosted at during the Boston Seafood Show. 
uh, obviously not this year. Um, but we got a great lineup of guests that are going to be joining us there, uh, and and we're excited to take a look, um, look into that crystal ball, and see what's going to happen over the next year. Uh, we'll be previewing uh, previewing some findings from our uh, latest um, uh, business intelligence report on on selling seafood in the coast uh, post COVID era, rather. Um, so you can go to intrafishevents.com and you can find the uh, site for that event there. Uh, and register and uh, and join us. Um, it it should be a fantastic event. So, thanks everyone, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>